You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. On this episode of the podcast, we sat down with the infamous Tom Randall of Wide Boys fame. Tom reflected on some of the most transformative moments in his climbing career, debunked some of the myths of climbing training, and got us hyped on the AAC's new partnership and discount with Lattice Training. Whether it's how to train as a trad climber or the difference that trainers see between UK athletes and US athletes, we covered a broad range of topics. If you're curious whether you should start training for climbing, even if your goals in climbing have nothing to do with pushing grades, then dive in. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the beta. Since 1981, outdoor research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level, together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. Okay, today on the podcast, we have Tom Randall. Most people will probably know Tom from his wide boys fame, but he's also one of the founders of Lattice with Ollie Tour. And the AAC is going to be partnering with Lattice with a really cool partnership. And so we have Tom on the podcast today, but we're going to talk a lot about Tom's climbing as well as Lattice, what it's all about and what maybe members and listeners can get from this cool new partnership. All right. So a lot of people know who you are, Tom, and know a lot about you. But So I'm going to hopefully ask some new and interesting questions so people can learn a little bit more. Let's just start with what's a recent moment of pure joy or pure fear in climbing that you've experienced? Yeah, you definitely started with a different question. I, I think that maybe is only like the second time I've been asked that question, maybe. Uh, so you started, you started well there. Um, okay, so I will go for the joy one. Uh, mainly because I like spending my time enjoying climbing and getting good out of it. And I would say it's probably been something, there's been a few experiences, but definitely in the last year or two where I have been really intentional about trying to get into, I suppose, a really good mental zone or flow state within climbing. And it's it's often been in the style of slab climbing because that particular style, it, I suppose, facilitates that ability to kind of get into the zone for a fair amount of time. It's slightly less physical, so it, it kind of helps that. And yeah, like having some of those instances when you get it absolutely perfect is just pure gold. And you kind of feel like you would love a life where you could just have that every single day. But it's really hard to get. Um, but it's it's definitely nice when you do. Yeah, I almost feel like I think I know what you're talking about. And I almost wonder if that's a step above joy. It's like elation. Like it's like even more intense than that. <laughs> that's yeah, really it's awesome. definitely Yeah, it's really intense for sure. Okay. You've been up to a lot of stuff. You've been around climbing community for a long time. 
What year of your life did your climbing and your training potentially change the most? I would say definitely it changed the most in the years kind of running up to making the first ascent of Century Crack out in the Canyonlands in Utah. And obviously like the actual moment where me and Pete made that first ascent. And really for that, it kind of changed our careers and maybe our lives as well in the sense that we went from being relatively good climbers. So we weren't, you know, intermediate or beginner climbers. We were kind of just brushing up on the edges of sort of semi-professional climber, like a few little sponsorship deals here and there to then really kind of going into the deep end with a bit more kind of recognition of doing something right at the cutting edge of what had been done. And it was that two year period of going from being quite beginner at a particular niche and style to trying to then do the hardest in the world in it. And that immersive experience in 100% committing to a process and dedicating everything in your life to that cause. And I think for both of us, we realized that maybe this was something that we could do again and again, that you can, if you really focus, achieve a lot more than you maybe would think, because neither of us would say we're particularly special people or anything or particularly talented. It's more like focus and intention and commitment produces much better results than you think. It's just, it's hard to do it for two years, you know, unwaveringly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It does seem like that seems to be one of your strongest skills is just like really grinding, you know, and going for it. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think I'd say commitment is probably one of my well-developed skill sets. Like I take a long time to think about how much I'm going to commit to something. And then when I am committed, I'm really committed. And it's very rare that I'll bail on something. But if And if I do, it'll be for well thought out reasons as well. So yeah, I'd say commitment is a, a definite strength. Which leads me into my next question. I've been really interested lately in asking, you know, regular everyday climbers as well as pros, like what your goal making process is, because I find that even though we talk about grades so much, a lot of people make really interesting goals that aren't about grades. They're about learning this crazy new style, like you're kind of just talking about, or silly things like the bridge boys thing that you and Pete did. So what is your goal making process? How do you like pick a goal? What do you think about when you're making a goal? And kind of what are you after when you're making goals? Yeah, so goal making for me is is another really important part of my life. Um, I've, I've done a lot of it over over the years. And I would say I call it kind of like a brewing process. So it's like brewing a cup of tea or a coffee. It, it takes some time. Um, and actually, when it comes to goals, some goals can take years to brew fully until you then get into this stage of commitment. So I brew and then I commit. And what I will tend to do is I'll have a whole number of different concepts or goals or ideas that I'm constantly brewing and I've kind of got them churning over in my mind. And I check in on them on a relatively frequent basis and just think about how they feel. Where does it line up? Is it starting to become practical yet? Am I feeling a sort of burning desire for it? Is it matching up with my lifestyle, the time that I have, the strengths and weaknesses that I have within my climbing? Climbing partnerships even can be a big part of it. And really what I'll do is that when it gets to the point where a number of different practical factors start to line up, like the season is right, the climbing partner just lined up right, my time availability is working out for this particular year or season or whatever, then I will 
then say, right, these things are coming together. And now I can probably think about committing to this thing because if I'm going to commit, I want it to be realistic that I can actually do it. And so enough practical things have lined up. And then secondly, is that I leave that to be a very organic process. So I don't rush it. I don't push any of these things. All, even though from the outside, people probably think I'm very directed about choose this goal. Then he goes and does this. And then he goes and does that. It very much just organically happens. But I'm very intentional about that process and patient about it so that it looks like it just sequences on from one goal to another. But really what it is, is I've just got a good process. And that's mm -hmm. why it looks that way. Yeah, I could totally see how having the right person kind of come into the picture or like the right timeline, like can help be a catalyst to making something like all of a sudden make sense, um, especially like a per somebody else's energy when they hook on to an idea too. <laughs> That's really awesome. I actually wanted to ask you earlier, you know, you were telling us about how Century Crack was very transformative in your climbing career. What about a year of your life that you changed as a person? When would I have changed as a person? Ah, uh, yeah, I would link this back to probably work, actually, and my professional career with the which we'll you know we'll talk about a little bit about uh, lattice and how I kind of ran and grew that business and that team that's intrinsic to it because lattice is very much not me and Ollie anymore. We're like a tiny little part of it and it's it's his own organism and it's a it's a team of really, really capable people that are developing and pushing forward what that company stands for and what it's trying to do. And I think in the first few years I operated very much like you know the professional athlete that's quite good at working with two or three people at a time. And I'd never worked inside of a business with lots and lots of people in a in a sort of team working manner. And likewise I'd not done a very much very many team sports before that so I wasn't very well developed in that way and in the kind of period maybe from 20 2019 2020 onwards the business very much became like this much larger organization of people with their own goals operating their own departments with their own projects but pushing really hard for the kind of passion that we all have and I struggled to work out how I could be a proper team player rather than just someone who could operate with two to three people quite effectively because that's often what climbing feels like and we're quite evolved in doing that so I would say nowadays um yeah quite a different person in the sense that I understand how to make that work with multiple people and how to do that give and take across more people at once and it's, it's mainly actually been about realizing that there is only so much capacity you have in your life to communicate and coordinate with that many people. And if you fill your life with too many people, I think it becomes very hard to be a good team worker because you run out of energy. Mm. Yeah, the Lattice team is really big. And that's so awesome that kind of you guys have been able to find that because I think you're right, like, maybe a lot of climbers don't have that personal experience with the team setting or they have like they don't in climbing because as much as the climbing community talks about like partnership and like how much that is important as like a key theme that you like a life lesson that you learn from climbing and all of that sort of stuff that is radically different than working in a much bigger group right teams of two and three are like is one type of like managing emotions and like leadership and that sort of thing versus like a much bigger group so yeah that's really interesting thanks for sharing that okay 
I'm interested also in potentially a climb that still haunts you. The one that, yes, it sits on my mind the most I keep coming back to and often friends also ask me about is recovery drink in Norway, which I tried fairly sort of committedly in the years of, I think, maybe 2018 and 2019. And it's this really hard 8C plus finger crack trad climb in Norway on the profile wall, right at the limit of what I'm personally capable of and will likely be one of the three hardest things that I'll, I'll probably do in my life. And I got very, very close to doing that route well, whilst trying it with Pete. But then, as it just so happens, certain things just didn't quite line up, like COVID happened. Then I went through a process of it where I kind of tried to like take the dieting approach too hard, and that didn't really work that well. And I got slightly demotivated after it. And then I started going ultra running and lost a load of strength, blah, blah, blah. And it's one of those routes which is so demanding that it's taken a long and it's taking a long time to be able to get back into a position where it's going to be motivating to try it again. But I still want to do it because I've put invested so much time into it. And in some ways, I feel a, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I feel like a duty to finish it off for the benefit of Pete because we started that thing together and I want to finish it together. Sounds weird, but that's that's definitely how I feel about it. Yeah, that's awesome. It like is very meaningful because of that connection. So when are you going back? <laughs> Do I dare ask? <laughs> Again, it's um, it comes back to this goal thing. It's a brewing process. Okay. So I let all the different factors line up. So like right now, availability is really good. Like I could go over there next week if I wanted to. Um, but other things haven't lined up. So I'm waiting until those do, but I'm very aware of all the factors that will line up will then mean, yep, just get over there and start getting back on it again. And I'm just patient, basically. Yeah. Wait, that is great. Uh, that leads me into one of my, I think maybe a lot of climbers don't have the skill of patience, which leads me to something I've been like also brewing on is, is there a climber life cycle? And when I've asked you this before, you just kind of like, were like, yes, like hands down. So tell me about what do you think is the climber life cycle if there is one? It probably is very different for everyone. And I suspect a lot of it is down to how someone's life evolves and how long they stay in the sport. So I would imagine that people who stay in the sport for a relatively short time, maybe one to five years, that life cycle, I guess, would probably look quite similar, like fairly generic for most people. But the ones that stay in it for 20 years and then 50 years, I suspect that they, it changes massively per decade and the interests and the motivation and what you get out of the sport really does evolve depending on whether, you know, how much you're working, your age, your geographical location and partners and what seems the best, your relationships, family, all sorts of different things. And to me, it feels very natural and healthy for people to understand that that would change over time because you can't just fit your life around climbing as being a, con a constant because that's probably not realistic. I think it's better to fit the climbing to suit your life for the most part, unless you're a professional climber, maybe there's a little bit more flexibility of that. Otherwise, just everything else in your life derails or becomes unenjoyable to do. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely been noticed people talking about kind of that later stage of, and I don't think there's a fixed time, but it does seem the pattern might be after like seven years, after a decade of climbing, there's a shift in a shift in thinking about risk and a shift in thinking about, you know, patience and stoke. And like, you can still be like really psyched, but there's like just more emotional regulation perhaps or something. And I don't know if that, like you, like you were saying, is that entirely just because people are getting older? They've been, te- they're 10 years older and they like have like more <laughs> human elements to them, like that they're growing up. I don't know. So definitely trying to figure it if I, if I can like identify like the way it works, I would love to see that, like <laughs> to have like a fully formed theory of it, but it's probably exactly like you said, different for every person. So maybe there's a whole a- book for you to, there's a whole book for you to write there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> One of my last questions for you before we kind of talk more about coaching and lattice is if you were to describe your relationship to climbing as a relationship type. So Platonic best friends, first crush, life partner. How would you describe your relationship to climbing? Uh, well, it definitely would be life partner. I'm pretty certain that I'm yeah all in forever with climbing, but it would be very much a blend of, I suppose I would say like lover and best friend. It has it has to have that kind of blend for me because it's a very broad thing climbing in the way that like people will say oh well aren't you just really serious about your climbing and super intense because we just go climbing for fun and I'm like no no no, I do both of those things I'm really intense and I've really enjoyed that part of it but also it's so important to have relaxed time and fun and enjoyment that's nothing to do with performance so it's it's both of those uh, I think yeah, absolutely. Which actually, I did just forget a question, but uh, now I remember it. As someone, you know, who has a ton of climbing experience, maybe is long, like farther into your climber life cycle, and then also has thought really carefully about like balancing probably work because you work in the climbing industry, you're a professional climber. So you have personal climbing goals as well. And you have a family and all this stuff like I think a lot of people who are in the outdoor industry, even not let alone the climbing industry, are like really interested in like, how do you make it all work and not burn out of climbing sort of thing? And I think you're just starting to to answer that. But yeah, how do I, um, I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm immune from burnout for sure. I, I've definitely been through a number of periods in, in my life with it and I suppose I've learned to recognize that's like a risk factor in how I, I do things and how I live and structure my life. But I mean, one is I'm, I'm quite careful and protective over what I do put my energy and time into. And I'm quite disciplined about saying the things I'm going to spend my time because I, because I am really active, really busy, and I've got a lot of things on my plate is that they mostly need to be really fulfilling and enjoyable and what I am into. I'm very, very careful to cut stuff out that I don't like um, because I feel like, because I push hard, that just quickly drags me down and is and is hard to sort of deal with, I suppose. So that's a really big factor of it. And then the other bit is just matching up my life activities with my personality type and what I like. Like, I'm really... I like being really scattered all over the place. I don't like things being too steady and stable and consistent. Um, so I like to chop and change 
all the time, but just finding the right balance of it. So getting really practiced at that version of how you juggle all those things. And then, then that, you know, results in fulfillment and happiness as much as you, you can get it. It's just uh, not the easiest to get right all the time if you do run life in that way. And I'm like a million miles from getting it right. I, I just try and juggle and struggle as best as I can through it. Yeah, sounds a little bit like ordered chaos, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> okay, so let's kind of, that was Tom as an athlete. I mean, there's obviously so much more there, but mostly we're, today we're going to talk about you as a coach. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became a coach and how long you've been coaching and what, if you could like pinpoint, do you think you have like a coaching philosophy? Like what is the most important to you in structuring Lattice or structuring yourself as a coach? So I started coaching originally actually through uh, martial arts when I was a teenager and I couldn't really afford to pay for lessons um, through my teenage years. So I basically used to coach or instruct as a way of reducing the membership cost for doing, you know, the sport that I really liked as a teenager. So that's kind of how I built my original experience of it from a practical point of view. But then as I went into the climbing industry and started to, I worked as a route setter for a climbing wall for a period in my early 20s and also just spent a lot of time hanging out with climbers and talking about sports science and how you train. And I'd, I'd already done a number of, uh, you know, training years as such all the way through my teenage years. So I was really into doing that myself. And it just ended up with me and talking with lots of people who are interested in training themselves, reading lots of articles, reading books. And I got to know a really well-established sports scientist based out of Sheffield called Dave Binney in those years and ended up really talking to him a lot about what coaching involved and what training involved and trying to talk about methodology and systemization of it. And at the same time, then decided I wanted to get involved with elite competition coaching and training. So I originally managed the British climbing team. So I was more sort of a manager, but then went from management into coaching itself and then worked with the junior teams for a number of years. And it was kind of like that blend of wanting to know how to solve it myself and train myself, but also working with those teams who I was coaching. But I came with that management perspective because I'd managed the senior team. So I liked that organizational structuring and periodization aspect and just started to kind of build a model in a way that I thought would be effective for climbers out there. And I suppose during that period, people started to kind of hear about what I was doing. And I talked to lots of people about it because I was really enthusiastic about it and then started to pick up clients and people came to me wanting to know how I was doing it and how I was structuring things. And I think the early years of philosophy for me always came about under a look at the strengths and weaknesses of a climber and kind of identify where someone is right now in terms of what they bring to, to the game and then think about what the goals of what they want to do and what the required you know, strengths and weaknesses are for those goals and then line up good training methodology with getting each of those items to the point where it needs to be in the future. So it was just like a, where are you now? Where do you want to be? But be really objective and quite sort of data driven about it and then provide a pathway to get there. And, that, and that's really what I sort of evolved and developed over the years. Yeah, I think um, 
when people do know about Lattice, they know kind of this data focus, um, which is honestly really needed. The, the training world in climbing is still so new. And so like seeking like a scientific objective way to try to like benchmark things and understand like, can we test this over time and see how to how it changes seems to be like really important. That's really cool that it kind of just arose organically for you across time. Okay, Tom, so we're super excited about this partnership with Lattice because that means that AAC members get a super sweet discount on a on Lattice training. So can you tell us, like, I guess, first of all, who is this even for? Like, I think there's kind of a perception that training, climbing training is for a specific type of people who, from like all of your decades of experience, who should be somebody who should be considering training and why would you train? Like, and I guess I have follow-up questions, but if you want to start there. Yeah, sure. So I think the way to think of training is that really what it is, is not some item that's there just for elite performers or people that want to spend all their time pumping iron in the gym or hanging off a fingerboard or doing loads and sets and reps. It's really just a method of consistently preparing and stimulating your body to deal with the loads that you want to give it either in subsequent weeks of activity or during a project or a goal that you have. It's just a structured way of getting the body to do what you want it to do. And so that could be anything from I would like to reduce my injury incidents over the next 10 years. You would train to do that. Or it might be, I would like to train, sorry, I would like to climb all the, all the way through my 50s and 60s. So you can train to prepare your body for that. I would like to train to increase the muscle mass on my back and shoulders because I've always done a non-odd upper body sport all of my life. I've always been a runner and I need to bulk up to, you know, prepare my body to get into some steep, hard bouldering or sport climbing. Again, you would take a training approach to that. So that's where I always try and get people to understand that this is just a, a structured approach to doing activity. And that's why we tend to call it training. So there's lots of different outcomes that you can have with it. And really it, should fundamentally always be applicable to almost any climber across the entire grade and experience spectrum. But it's about moderating the activity you do so that it is suitable to your training history and where you're at in your climbing. So if you've only been climbing for one month, then the complexity and the amount of training that you would do would be really, really minimal. You just ease yourself into it which is very different from someone who's been doing it 10 years, then again, versus someone who's doing it 50 years. And it's maybe in the twilight years of their kind of performance. And now they're looking at maintaining the muscle mass they have and staying uninjured and staying with a high degree of longevity in the sport. All those things can take a training approach. And when it comes to lattice and what we do, I think there's sort of two sides to the kind of equation. One is that we produce lots of training tools, like so like actual physical items for training in the gym or training at home that are applicable and useful for all parts of the climbing spectrum, whether it's like rehab or building strength or building strength endurance, you know, fingerboards, pickup devices, rehab stuff. Um, and then we obviously have the training programs that we also write, which I would say 
On those, they are objectively more in the intermediate zone to advanced climber zone, simply because the training programs that we offer are an online offering where you have a coach and you'll be you know, sending them DMs and you'll receive a training plan and exercise sheets and structuring on that. And we wouldn't give that to someone who's only climbed for a month and doesn't really understand the kind of complexities of try training or climbing exercise. It wouldn't really be appropriate. So I think that's what I'd be saying. Training tools applicable across the entire spectrum, but our training plans a little bit more mid to advanced grade. Okay. So yeah, so that sounds like, I, I mean, I've gotten direct questions. It's so funny, like, because I train <laughs> as just a, as a climber, I don't have that much experience with it, but I have so many friends who don't train for climbing and they're constantly asking me all these questions. And I'm in like one that I, like a lot of my friends ask constantly is if I, if I'm not interested in projecting, I don't want to project the process of projecting isn't interesting to me, but I want to get better or like on-site more or on-site at a better grade what's to be gained like do I have to train can I just work on that somehow differently and it seems like that can be an objective that training could help right like like it could be really expansive yeah I mean you you can take you can take a number of different approaches in climbing and training is no instant panacea to not achieving what you want right now because. Mm-hmm. It's about really getting the body to adapt and change according to the stimulus that you give it. So you could say, arguably, well, I'm going to do zero training, but I'm going to increase the amount that I go climbing per week and I'm going to do more time on task or like the activity more frequently. And that, in most cases, will increase your skill set. It will improve your movement efficiency, your confidence, the way that it sort of it gets into every nook and cranny of your life and likely you'll see improvement with that. But then likewise, there'll possibly be a point where the return on the investment of that increased time won't have so much results. So that might be where you might go to a more structured approach. But then there are other people that will say, well, I can't give more time because actually I have a really busy job and I've got a lot of things on my plate. So I am stuck with my six hours a week where I have sort of quality intentional time at the gym, for example, and then one day at the weekend going outside. So I want to use those six hours in a really efficient, productive way. And again, that might take more of a sort of a training alley for what that individual uh, does with their with their spare time. So it, there's a number of different approaches that you can take with it in reality. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more for people who are, you know, on that mid to more advanced level and are ready to start training maybe with one of your the programs that Lattice already has what does that look like can you tell me a little bit about the remote assessment like how does mindset and movement work in there and then do they tend to be super like well-rounded like is it about being a well-rounded climber is it about extreme specialization does it depend entirely on the climber themselves and their goals yeah so all the plans that any individual would get from us and our coaches always start with some form of assessment and the, and the sort of the complexity and the depth of the assessment will depend on the level that the climber comes in at and to some extent the kind of service that they're buying into with the training plans but as i said like my kind of initial philosophy of how i did this training and coaching with people was that i wanted to get the starting point and understand where is someone at now so that assessment piece is, is important to us and just enables a conversation between the coach and the individual to 
kind of baseline that out and understand how that reflects on the goals that they have going forward and the timelines and, and things like that. But once that assessment is completed, then always we go into a process where the coach as an individual will then work with that climber to understand where they're at now, what their goals are, the time that they have, the facilities they have, and build a customized program for that person. And that's a, you know, something that goes on every single week in our offices. You've got your coaches there working with all their individual athletes, doing that on whether it's a bouldering plan or a plan to climb their first route on El Cap or just to do loads of trad mileage or for a Spanish sport climbing trip in nine months time and they're trying to get climb their first 513 for example or even the first 512 there's there's loads and loads of different goals and the coaches all just work to build those programs out and the real differences in what we do are really down to the amount of contact time and editing really and sort of uh changes in plan that a individual wants so the stuff that's the most kind of highly adaptable, um, lots of editing, lots of kind of personal DM time with their coach on a one-to-one basis will be the, like if you look at a website, it'll be termed as like the performance coaching plan. And that'll, you know, obviously be the most costly form of training plan that anyone will do just because you get more human coach time with you every single week there, kind of assisting you through the plan. And then we'll have our services like the sport and boulder plan where really you're getting the structuring and the building of the plan from your coach and really mapping that out towards your goals rather than that weekly ongoing editing and dm contact with a coach and that's uh i suppose for many people often a sort of entry point where they start to understand how we work with people and what's the feel of you know like getting inside the app and using it and how much they enjoy coaching it's a little bit shorter term uh, commitment as well so that can work for people a little bit better but both of them work in a very similar way it's just a staged level of how much coach contact time you really have and but they both operate on the same app they have the same structuring in terms of a coach and how they build the models all our coaches are uh, trained in the same way um so whether you work with Gemma or you work with Billy you still get the lattice know-how, the, the lattice methodology in terms of how we work with athletes. Yeah. So one of the things you said earlier actually made me wonder, you know, you were talking about like the different types of programs, like the, the, there's, you would tailor it to bouldering or sport climbing or something like that. I've listened to a lot of training podcasts in my climbing years. Most of the time people are talking about bouldering or sport climbing, wondering like, do you guys get a lot of people who are training to become more elite at trad climbing specifically? And what does that look like? And how is it different, if at all, than training for sport climbing? Yeah, we get a lot of uh, elite level trad climbers. I mean, I think we've trained a number of the best trad climbers in the world. I mean, we have like we've trained Alex Honnold, Tommy Caldwell, um, Emily Harrington, Hazel Finley. A, a lot pete whitaker like the <laughs> whole i mean i guess a good section of people have worked with us um on that front and we've got lots of trad climbers in the company so there's a kind of a degree of depth of experience that comes with it and in terms of how that training works and looks 
is for the for the most part when it comes to trad climbing and how that might vary from sport climbing is it's very much on the basis of what is the trad project style and what is that individual trying to achieve but also often how long have they been in that trad climbing habit and potentially not done a great deal of sort of structured training off the wall to complement that um, training so we have come across a lot of trad climbers over the years that have had less of a sort of training culture i suppose embedded in their activities so we end up doing a lot of additional strength and conditioning work to get those climbers stronger off the wall in some ways to then bring it back to be complementary to performance others it's just about increasing the depth and the density of the training that they've done because they're very good at spending a lot of time on a route and plodding away very carefully but not so good at operating at a high intensity for a mid level of time le- length of time just like sport climbers so it is very very varied and it's just i suppose it, it can almost be an unsatisfying answer for a lot of people that they want some sort of generic answer for how things would work but the reality is of good training is that it's always individualized to that single person, which is why it's really hard to produce the best possible results from a cookie cutter mm-hmm. style approach of training. It's not to say that you can't get some results and you can actually get some quite good results if you're you're quite careful about how you put those things together, but it's never going to produce the best results because it's too individualized. Yeah. So then what about people who are, I guess, Potentially, we're just going to come back. It's just individual. But, you know, I'm asking specifically about tri climbing training because from our, you know, surveys through our membership, a lot of AAC members identify as trad climbers as one of their primary disciplines. But I think, you know, a lot of them are also newer to that form, like that discipline, that form of climbing. And I know I've definitely, like, kind of like I was saying earlier, had friends be like, well, I know how to train for sport climbing. How do I train for trad climbing? And I'm wondering where like movement and skills-based stuff fits in for newer people, maybe in general across the spectrum, not just trad climbing, because I know that that can be a different emphasis depending on like somebody's coaching philosophy, that could be a different emphasis. Obviously, you and Pete have done a ton of like video content about crack technique and stuff like that. So I guess how does that fit in into Lattice? Yeah, so we are a company that does not focus on the skill and technique element of climbing simply because you can't do the best job on it on in an online remote manner. So what we do is that we reflect on and understand that there is probably less point in trying to deliver a particular service or aspect of someone's improvement in their climbing via a medium which isn't going to work it's it's never going to be quite right so the way that we manage this is that we very much focus on where we can make really impactful changes in the climate so a lot around the kind of physiology and that physical training piece when it comes to climbing and it's not the only piece i mean we all know that psychology of climbing the technique the tactics are super important but we don't try and do what we're not going to be able to be world-class experts in. And it's not to say that we ignore that aspect and you will find that all of our coaches will be talking with their clients and saying, you know, it's really important that you find a good balance of actual time on rock and climbing, not just doing a load of dead hanging and spending all your time in gym. So they'll work with them to strategize, you know, the percentage of time that they'll spend doing those activities and keeping them accountable 
to not drifting too far down that kind of basic training route. Or they'll be saying, send me some videos of you trying your project and I can have a look at how you're actually breaking down that crux section. And they can review the videos with them and say, okay, so I can see you're doing this with here. Um, maybe look at how your shoulders are working in this manner. So let's do some exercises to try and improve this. Or it might be, you know, I'll look at, look at a video of you doing a project. Actually, your pacing is completely off. And what you're not realizing here is it's not an aspect of how fit you are. It's simply a pacing piece that you need to sort out. And that's really useful feedback that the coach can give directly to the individual once they've seen a video. But it's it's kind of recognizing that we can do something within that and still make some kind of form of meaningful change. But we won't try and hold ourselves up as being a company which or an organization which is like pro experts in movement coaching because we're not and i think that'd be really misleading to do that especially when it comes to online coaching or training yeah that makes sense to just like really lean into what you know what works based on the model that you have and to really emphasize that way of helping folks i wanted to ask a question that i think you probably have a lot of personal experience with too and probably a lot of your athletes and that are coming to you and your other coaches at lattice are asking how do you distinctly plan for trips or destination training because right you travel a lot to go climbing and I'm wondering how you balance like the the whole element of time and timing it and making sure that you're performing but also like the element of like I don't know work helping athletes work through like you only have a week or you only have two weeks like what should your goals be in that time frame and what's reasonable and that sort of thing so the number one process when it comes to working towards trips and things like that is that you want to work backwards from your your D D day as such and look at the time frames and where you can make good meaningful improvements in certain aspects of your performance which or not not your performance your your makeup that goes into into the performance itself. So if you have 12 weeks before you're about to go away and you've got your planning, only use your time up with things that you can make meaningful change with in 12 weeks because you only have 12 weeks you can't, and you can't work on 17 different things. If you have only five weeks, then your list is going to be a lot shorter that you can make meaningful change on. And that's where often a good oversight or being good at high level understanding of all those factors that go into performance and knowing how quickly you can change certain aspects is really powerful because as a coach or just a really well-informed climber who understands themselves, they will say, okay, these things are where I can use, use my time in this next five weeks. All the other stuff, even though I would really love to have much stronger fingers in five weeks time, I'm just not going to get it in five weeks. So let's just accept that and go and work, use my time elsewhere more, more usefully. And that's you know, what we'll always do, what anyone should be doing with structured training is thinking about how you use your time and where you're going to get results from that resource that you put in, because it's just a big waste if you just scattergun take an approach that isn't well thought out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I've heard you talk about fingerboard training a lot. And, you know, I think a lot of people are talking about training for trips these days and everything like that. But 
what training concept are you geeking out on right now that you're just like super into and you're trying to like refine or think new, like in new ways about, or do you kind of feel like you have your set understanding of the way training should work? Uh, I think probably the, the area of training that I and a number of us at work have been really interested in over the last probably co- like couple of years is a lot of the lifting work mm. for uh, finger strength and it's been really interesting to see that methodology of doing dead hang work from a sort of hanging position and how that is very, very effective in building finger strength to actually there's a whole other part of the equation that you can do with lifting something off the floor, which can be potentially much more convenient, way easier in terms of equipment, but produce results which are very, very similar to that dead hang work whilst also being highly portable and having the option of making lots and lots of different grips that can work and more suitable to a beginner and intermediate level climber. And that's an area where we've definitely had a fast learning curve because it's really become a lot more popular over the last few years, but seen freaking great results off it. So that's been that's been super interesting. And, and I think we will continue to push quite hard on that particular sort of area of um, strength training. Would that be like an as an alternative to hangboarding or would it just be in addition to like how what uh, do you guys see? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it depends, it depends on the individual. Some people will do both of them. Some of them will do alternatives. Like a classic case of when you would do it as an alternative might be when you're rehabbing an injury. So it's a lot easier to do very, very light moderated loads via lifting. Or it might be if you have a particular shoulder injury, which means that it's very hard to get your, your arm above your head. And it's really problematic. You can often do the same finger strength work, but at a sort of a lifting position and have no issues. Yeah, I was wondering when you brought that up, it seems like one of the key things about hangboarding is the way it can potentially hurt your shoulders and your elbows if you're doing it wrong. <laughs> is is the lifting protocol like much better on both of those like injury possibilities? I wouldn't say so, no. I think ev- every training tool has its risks. And I wouldn't particularly see hangboarding as being more dangerous than a lot of other things in terms of the shoulders. You could argue that it's more dangerous in the sense that people get into a bit of a hole and they do too much of it. And that, of course, leads into a position of excessive overload, too high a frequency of training at too high a load with not enough rest. That's going to increase injury incidence. So that can be a problem. And again, elbows. You can have problems with elbows from all sorts of different activities. And I think that would be, yeah, misleading to ever think that fingerboarding is a problem with it as such. And I, I don't know, I think this is just part of one of those little niggles that you get in the culture of climbing that certain things pick up a bit of a name or a reputation for causing issues. But honestly, I see, I see very, very little issues with almost all carefully controlled training tools. The stuff that causes issues is people doing too much, not resting enough, too high a frequency of training or doing exercises which just are brand new to them, just too high in intensity and that, that's your issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of as you're speaking in this, like kind of seeing these patterns across other climbers in the climbing community, this is potentially like, I don't, I want to ask a question because I just want to see if there is an answer, but it's probably not. I don't, it's just, I'm just curious, like culturally, is there a particular gap weakness that you see in U.S. athletes and U.K. athletes? Like, are they different? 
or or are climbers climbers and they all have kind of the same weaknesses sort of thing there's, there's some small differences i would say uk athletes on the whole tend to have pretty strong fingers for the grade we have a very big culture of uh, training uh, the weather's not very good a lot of people have training boards at home in their cellars or their attics or in their uh, garage and so that means that they train on 45 degree boards and do a lot of bouldering so i would say on the whole yeah the, the british climber has quite strong fingers but the american climber is often a lot fitter and and often has a lot more rock experience mm. as well um and for the most part i think it all evens out you get an overly strong less experienced slightly more scared climber works out with the person who's very experienced very calm but slightly weaker you know yeah yeah <laughs> all evens out that's really awesome i that's interesting i I'm glad that there was an answer. I don't know why I was so interested in that. Okay. If you were to share one last bit of Stoke for listeners and why they should uh, take advantage of this AAC partnership with Lattice, what would you say? What would I say to anyone thinking about doing stuff with Lattice? Okay. So from the products point of view and using any of our training products, I think we are really good. If not, I would say where I think we're exceptional in the product support that we provide. And what I mean by that is that if you have any of our training devices, nearly all of them are supported by free online testing tools where you can just go on the internet and plug in your numbers and you can get some some kind of scores back and find out how strong or weak um, you are for a grade in terms of sort of a, a database or a model of those different strength metrics, all the way from flexibility to finger strength, to power endurance. There's all sorts of different things out there for us. And we built those all online to complement any of those training tools. And then also there's a massive load of videos, which are all available for free on YouTube. And those also kind of complement everything that we do in terms of training. So I think we're really unique in terms of providing lots of supporting stuff to go with a tool that you've just bought. You don't just go, oh, I've just bought something for $100 here. What do I do with it? You can just immediately go on the internet and do something and get support. So I think it's really good in that sense. And then from a training perspective and training plans, I think that we're really unique in terms of the overall experience and breadth of expertise that we have as a team. We're a 20-person coaching team with, I mean, probably half of the co company um, have climbed 514 or more. We've got international comp athletes, Climbers that have climbed 515, you know, 514 R plus trad, big walls, everything. And it's like a hive mind of expertise. So you, you'll always get a really good degree of support when you come on to anything with us. And we've spent a lot of years kind of adapting and involving that so that it is really good. And lastly, I would also say that if anyone joins us for our kind of more comprehensive performance coaching plan where you'll have a one-to-one -one coach and everything like that very much the mission with that with working with any individual is that we would like that person to be able to go away after two or three years of working with us and be really self-sufficient mm. and know the training journey and know how to moderate themselves like i always laugh to myself when i get an email from a client that's left after three years saying hey i'm so sorry to be leaving but i like know exactly what i'm doing i've learned so much from you it's really been a good process and i go that's literally music to my ears. You don't need to be, I don't want you to be sufficient on us for the next 10 years. That's in a way, that's a sign that we're not 
giving you the right tools and you're not understanding how this stuff is done. So I always hope that in a way, it's almost like investing in yourself and the longevity of yourself as an athlete. And I know it is a relatively expensive thing to do, but you know, if you go through that process over two or three years with us, you've got something there that will last you potentially 40, 50 years, especially if you come back and just watch our videos and look at the stuff that you have on the social media, because all the information's out there. It's just how you collate it. So that's what I would say is, yeah, you know, what we're, what we're like and how we work as a company. Yeah, that's so exciting and definitely very inspiring too. I hope a lot of listeners are sound are psyched to train with you guys. I guess we're kind of running low on time and I wanted to leave us with kind of stepping back from training and ask another kind of climbing culture question. What do you wish the climbing community was talking about more? I wish the climbing community was talking more about mentorship. So I would like to see an increased culture of experienced climbers supporting beginner climbers coming in, but also beginner climbers knowing that they can approach experienced climbers. And for the most part, they will be totally amenable to sharing their expertise and knowledge. And I feel like the internet has made it look like that's not the case because it can be quite it can be a bit funny on the internet, especially social media in that sense. But in reality, in person, most people are super cool and really giving. And I would like to see a lot more of that. Yeah, that's definitely, I feel like, a, especially when the AAC talks about like accidents, like our accidents portion of what we do in our accidents book, mentorship comes up a lot and like as a way to solve the increase in accidents or like, oh, if only this person had more mentorship, like that sort of thing. And I just never know exactly what the solution is going to be is because it seems like it has to be this like really grassroots, like people just believe I can go talk to that experienced climber at the gym or something. Mm. Do you see training and coaching as part of mentorship? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think good, good coaching and training sits within that category, which is why I said the whole thing of like, it's great when someone goes away and knows what they're doing. I mean my longest coaching relationship is with Will Bosey, who I've trained coached, I think I can't remember, it's like 11 years or something like that. And for the last few years, I, I don't even write him training programs. I just talk to him and we talk about goals and things like that. He's completely self-sufficient because I wanted him to be like that and to know how to look after himself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the right way to go. Yeah. And I definitely think that also points to potentially that not only does mentorship just like more mentorship can be happening, but also for longer periods of time. I think a lot of people think like, oh, I just need to learn how to do like the basics. And then once I'm in climbing, it's over. But like years and years of that type of relationship can like just really get into the nuances of like Mm. mountain risk and all that stuff. Okay, Tom, thank you so much for sharing everything that you did today. Um, Do you have any last climbing stories you want to share with us or um something that you're proud of that hasn't got a lot of media attention before we leave i don't know uh <laughs> anything that i'm proud that hasn't got enough media attention now it's time to spray <laughs> i think i really wish people understood a bit better how cool everyone is at that lattice team and everyone behind the company and what we've been doing over the last few years. I feel like sometimes we're perceived as being this kind of, you know, really fast growth, 
company that just suddenly like exploded onto the coaching and training scene. And I totally acknowledge that, you know, we're someone who's, we're everywhere. We're kind of ubiquitous across all social media and lots of different platforms and things like that. But if you walked into that office and went and spoke to everyone, it's just like almost impossible to just not walk away of going, oh, this is like the best place ever. I mean, I love going to work every single day because I consider all those people in there proper climbers. They're really, really passionate about what they do. And it's just like one of the greatest privileges in my life to have built and helped that organization grow to be those people because it's it's really nice to see a load of climbers doing something which has some form of meaning and trying to take the sport forward. And they're all doing that beyond what me and Ollie could ever really do on our own now. It's it's got its own legs and it's it's doing its own thing. But it's really hard to describe that in a sort of public way and get that across. Um so sometimes, yeah, that's the thing I post I'm most proud of that I wish was easier to to grasp. They're really cool set of people and really yeah doing something well i'm super psyched for this partnership thanks so much for chatting with me today no problem at all thanks for having me this episode was brought to you by adidas terex and outdoor research it was hosted by me hannah provo and produced by sierra mcgivney and shane johnson the aac and lattice training have a new partnership all AAC members can now get 20% off Lattice training plans or $150 off performance coaching plans and products. If you're an AAC member, cash in by going to membership.americanalpineclub.org and exploring your discounts. Super stoked on this discount and others like Backcountry, Patagonia, and Black Diamond? Join the club at americanalpineclub.org learn more.